Raise your hand if you notice that we have new carpet today. Anyone? Anyone? Raise your hand if you notice that there's new carpet here and old carpet here. So we're, we're working on that, right? Just give us another week and we'll have it all figured out. Trust, trust me, we're not going with the two-tone approach uh, unless, something, unless something goes sideways. That's, uh, we'll, we'll get the job finished. Got a lot of furniture to move this afternoon. Question for you. Are you afraid of God? Are you afraid of God? Ask yourself that question. Hmm. Now ask yourself this question. Should I be afraid of God? What do you think? Now, your heart's answer to that question will reflect your theology. Your theology of mind as well as your theology of heart and your theology of, of life, really. We are in a series that is grounded in the book of Exodus. And part of that series, a significant thread running through that series, is that God is leading and teaching His children Israel to be a worshiping people. This is when the people of God, who at that time was ancient Israel, today the people of God is the church. Since that day, we have been a worshiping people, a corporate worshiping people together. And so that's the reason why we have gathered today is to worship. And sometimes we forget that. We just go to church and we don't think about it. But it's sometimes good to just go back to the basics and remember who we are and what we're about. My name is Bailey, and I am a worshiper. Okay? I want to invite you to do that with me. We're going to say that together. We're going to say, my name is, you fill in your name, and I am a worshiper. We say this with me? Okay, let's do this. One, two, three. My name is Bailey, and I am a worshiper. All right, good. Let's try it again. One, two, three. My name is Bailey, and I am a worshiper. One more time. My name is Bailey, and I am a worshiper. It is who you are. It's, it's the very essence of your being. It's not just this tangential thing that you do on the side. It goes down to the very core of your soul. You were made by God to worship. Just as you were made to breathe, you were made to worship. It's how he has designed you. Really, all of creation worships in some ways. Uh, the trees, the animals, all give glory to, to God directly or indirectly. But we have this special calling as human beings, as the pinnacle of creation, that, that we reflect back to God the awesomeness and grandness of who God is and his creation of us. And when we're reflecting back to God who he is in us, then we are living out of who we were made to be. And when we are living out of who we are made to be, all is good and right and well within our soul. In fact, you were made to live this way forever. We are always going to be worshipers. God invites his people into a worship relationship in the book 
of Exodus. Last week in Exodus chapter 2, we looked at one of the key beginning ingredients for a people to even have the capacity to worship, and that was the ingredient of groaning. Groaning is, it's not like grumbling. Grumbling is just whining and complaining. We're all familiar with that. But groaning is about a deep, deep, deep calling in the heart. Something very deep inside of us, longing for something very deep inside of God. The Bible even says that the Spirit of God has been planted within us to groan. And the Spirit groans in ways that we don't even have words for it. It's something that comes deep in the soul. And sometimes we, we can't even fathom it with our intellect. We were made to groan to God. The Israelites groan out to God. They cry out to Him. Something deep in them is longing for this deliverance from slavery. They wanted it bad enough. The beginning of worship means that we have to be desperate enough. We have to want it bad enough. And sometimes, unfortunately... The only way to want it bad enough is when life gets uncomfortable enough. When life is not going our way. When life sometimes is hard. Those are sometimes the best conditions where we get to the point in our lives where we realize, I can't do this on my own. I cannot be the master of my own universe. I can't control it. I can't manage it all. That's when we start to cry out to God. Something in us will turn and shift up to the Lord. It's a great opportunity so if your life, you feel like your life is getting crunched a little bit, it's possible that God is allowing such conditions to get you to a place where you are desperate enough to call out to Him. That's the beginning of worship. Crying out to God. The Israelites cry out to God, reached up into the heavens, and God heard their cry. And He saw them, and He paid attention to them, and He sympathized with them, and He understood them, and He said, I am going to do something about this. And so God sends a messenger. There's a man by the name of Moses who was born in some really special circumstances. He was uh, biologically, he was an Israelite, but he grew up on Pharaoh's side of the river under the palace of Pharaoh because he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And so he kind of had his, his life in both worlds a little bit. Well, that got complicated for Moses as he grew up. He realized one day as he was walking among uh, the Israelites that an Egyptian was beating an Israelite. And so he goes and he kills this Egyptian and buries him in the sand. Later on, he realizes that he's found out about it. And Pharaoh uh, is wanting him and he, he has put a bounty on his head. And so Moses gets out of town. He gets out of country. He flees far, far away to the land of Midian where he begins to set up a new life. Gets married, has kids, and he is keeping uh, the sheep of his father-in-law. And it says that he goes not just into the wilderness, but beyond the wilderness. Not just in the middle of nowhere, but beyond nowhere. As remote as he can be. He is a man who is just trying to mind his own business. He's not looking for trouble. In fact, he is running away from trouble. He wants nothing to do. He just wants to live his little life in his corner of the world. He doesn't want anyone to mess with him. He doesn't want to mess with anyone else. And I think being as far away in the wilderness is probably the safest place to be able to do that. Until he sees this glimmering out of the corner of his eye. And he notices there is a light 
coming from this bush. And there's this flame, and yet the flame is not consuming the bush. It's in the bush, but it's not consuming the bush. And Moses ponders this and begins to kind of move toward this bush. And as he does so, he hears a voice call out of the bush. And it says, Moses, Moses. In the middle of nowhere, somebody knows his name. Moses says, here I am. And the voice says, do not come any closer. The place that you're standing is on holy ground. Keep your distance. Take off your shoes. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And it says that Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Are you afraid of God? Moses was, at least in this moment. And rightfully so. If you answer to the question, no, when I asked, are you afraid of God? Maybe you should be. Maybe we should all be a little afraid of God. Maybe if we're not afraid of God, we just haven't gotten close enough to God to feel the heat kind of easy to not be afraid of God as long as God is way over there and I am way over here nothing to fear we're out of range but if we really want to come into a relationship with God we might find ourselves trembling just a little bit Moses is afraid to look Fast forward later on in the history of Israel, Isaiah finds himself caught up into the temple of God. And the seraphim or these angels, these flying angels are are in God's presence and there's smoke in the temple and the angels are covering with two wings their eyes and two wings their feet and two wings they're flying and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And Isaiah realizes, what am I doing in this place? He's afraid. Fear and trembling. Holy ground. Is there any holy ground in the world anymore? What are the most sacred places that we can think of? One that comes to my mind on a weekend like this especially is the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington, Virginia. I've been there. There's a sense of sacredness. And if you you cross, there is a line. And if you cross that line, you will get in trouble. But there just aren't enough holy places anymore. There aren't enough places to strike the fear of God in our hearts. Think about what this is like in the world that we live in. I have visited uh, Dealey Plaza in uh, Dallas. Who's, who's, de- who's visited Dealey Plaza where uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated? A lot of us probably have. If you haven't, it's worth, it's worth it. 
I visited there two or three times and I've walked around and I've been to the museum and I even bought the I even bought the video and the magazine from the conspiracy guy on the side of the street. I'm serious. I have those. Those, those are the ones who always have the fresh angle on what really happened, by the way. I, I truly believe that. Um, but the last time I was at Dealey Plaza, um, I was really kind of shocked by something. There, there is a place on the street where President JFK was shot on November 22, 1963. And there's an X in the street. And it's probably meant to kind of give people perspective, to go back and kind of see what happened and, and where it was. But this whole thing has become kind of this big spectacle, the, the, some of the mystery around it and who did what and that kind of a thing. And I think we got a picture of it. I'll show the X. So there's the X right there. And behind it is the Sixth Floor Museum. Last time I was there, I saw people waiting for cars to pass, running out in the street, holding up their phone, and taking selfies on top of the X. And I got to thinking, what, what does it mean when we treat a place where a murder happened to the President of the United States into a place for selfies? It means we live in a culture that does not know holy ground. It means everything in our culture is meant to just kind of bring everything down to something that we can manage, to something that we don't have to have a sense of awe about. And in a culture that can't have a sense of awe, is a culture that doesn't know how to worship. And so we must, in our lives, fight in our own hearts and minds to keep holy ground in our lives. There needs to be times when we tremble before God. Of course, some people do say that they're afraid of God, but for the wrong reasons. Some are afraid of God because they believe that God isn't fully good. God is evil. Maybe like the, the bad father or the bad mother. Some authority figure in our life took advantage of that authority and used it for harm rather than for good. And we project that same image onto God and so we cower in the corner afraid of God. It's not a worshiping fear. It's a... It's a get away kind of a fear. Notice how God doesn't say to Moses, hey, get out of here. He just says, hey, don't come any closer. You're, you're just right. He doesn't say, leave me. He just says, right there. That's good. God is not evil. God is good. And, and you'll never come into His presence unless you really believe that. That's really the definition of faith. You look at Hebrews chapter 6. Faith is, happens when we believe that God is good and He rewards those who seek Him. Do you seek God? If you really believe that God is good, then there's something in you that's going to want to be with Him. You're going to want Him. You're going to long for Him. 
not just like the Israelites, Lord, get me out of this mess, but even beyond that, Lord, I want your goodness. One of my favorite books is the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in one of those books, they're describing the character Aslan, who is the lion. And the beaver is talking to uh, the children, uh, particularly Susan, about Aslan. And he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall rather feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said the beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course, he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. This is the beautiful paradox of worship. God is not safe, but He is good. You know, the air that we breathe in our world, for a lot of really good reasons, has safety written all over it. We are safer now than we've ever been in the history of humanity. I've done my share of buckling up children into car seats. I know about safety. There was a time in my life I could buckle a child in a car seat in 3.4 seconds. I've lost my edge. But I think that while safety has its place, that if all we ever hear is stay safe, and have we not heard stay safe enough in the past year and a half, that if we hear that too much, while that in and of itself is good, we can get duped into thinking maybe the goal of life is just to be safe. Maybe the goal of life is for me just to get away from all the dangerous stuff, away from all the evil, out in my own little wilderness where nobody knows my name. How many people are just going through life trying to be safe? How many people in life is it... Is it the goal is to work hard, then retire, and then be safe. How many of us live in the places we live primarily because safety is a big deal? Staying safe. Sometimes gets to be at odds with engaging God. Moses was close enough to God to tremble, but he wasn't too close. He was, he was in that sweet spot of worship, close enough to the fire to feel the flame, but not too close to get burned. Feel the heat. This is... Godly fear, healthy fear, holy fear, and it is a necessary ingredient if we're going to be a worshiping people. And so the challenge is to be open to 
moments in your life where you realize you're standing on holy ground. Sometimes holy ground is right in front of us and we just don't know it. This is holy ground right here. We're in holy ground today. Do you see it? Do you feel it? Last night I performed a wedding. And it's, it's not fair because I get the best seat in the house on weddings. I'm, I'm staring at the bride and the groom. And I feel like I'm just too close to the holy spot. I always feel like I need to step back. It's holy ground. God is doing a holy thing. It's beautiful. And I always have this feeling, I don't deserve to be here. Who am I to be able to officiate this wedding? This is craziness. God is taking these two and putting them together. You realize you're in territory that's beyond yourself. So how do we open our eyes? Because if God can show up in the middle of nowhere, God can show up in our lives too. Amen? Maybe it's you're just driving down the road. Maybe you're in the shower. Maybe you're just doing a regular day of work. Maybe you're cleaning your house. Maybe you're at a wedding. Maybe you're at church. Maybe you're driving in the mountains on vacation. Holy ground is all around us. Maybe you find yourself on holy ground as you ponder and reflect on the places of darkness in the world. It had to be in the back of Moses' mind. He probably never could have shaken the fact that his people were oppressed, that they were slaves. He could have never shaken the fact that he killed that man, buried him in the sand, and ran away. You cannot run far enough away from that. Maybe the sense of injustice in the world conditioned him to see the holiness of the ground that he was on. Maybe the sense of injustice in our world today can be a mix of us encountering a holy God. There are children right here in Lubbock, Texas who grow up in terrible conditions. There is a form of slavery of sorts that is happening all over town. People are slaves to sin, slaves to death, slaves to self-destruction, slaves to addiction, slaves to all kinds of things. Darkness has its grip on so many Maybe in the midst of that, in the back of our mind, we can come to this place where we see and hear the voice of God. This God that will always be a little other. You see, we need a God who is other than us. God knows Moses' name, but Moses doesn't know God's. Did you get that? Moses, Moses. I know who you are, buddy. Moses says to God at the end, well, what what is your name? I mean, what do I tell them your name is? And God pretty much says, hey, I am who I am. You, You do not own me. You can't have my name. You don't have control over me. The, the mindset is if you could know the God, uh, God's name, then, then you could manipulate and make that God do for you what you wanted them to do. This God is fully other. And that's the only kind of God that can save us. It's like a God who has one foot out of the, out of the pit 
and then puts one foot in the pit. If that foot never ever leaves the, the outside, that God can't save us anymore. But the God that we live is a God so other than us that he can save us from all the things that destroy us. That is the God that we have come to worship today. He is the great I am. And we know some things about him, but there's always a mystery to be revered. There's always holy ground to take our shoes off on. There's always bowing down. And there's always a mix of good, healthy fear. Not to be run away from, but just to be embraced. For that's the place of transformation. That's the place where God does things in our hearts that we never would have, could have done on our own. So may we see the burning bushes in our lives. May we realize that maybe we're running from God. May we hear His voice when He calls our name. And may we take off our shoes, whatever that looks like. When we find our holy ground, we know we'll be in the right place.